John chapter 1 is our text this morning. There are many texts that we could look at that point us to the birth of Jesus. I am mindful in these past days of the non-traditional verses. We usually go to Matthew chapter 1, we go to Luke chapter 2, and we think about all that that says about the coming of Christ. But all through the New Testament and the Old Testament, we are not, we are not disconnecting ourselves from the Old Testament. Throughout the Old and New Testament, the coming of Christ is preeminent. It points us to that coming. Why? Because that is the central focal point of all redemptive history. It is the high point. It is the, it is the peak moment in redemptive history that is pointing us to the ultimate redemption that will come at the second advent, the second coming of Christ. As I thought about these verses and prayed over some of these different ones, I thought about Galatians, the fullness of time. I thought about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All of these, if you want to be honest about it, all of these are Christmas texts. But the one that stands out in my heart and mind is John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When we think about the Christmas songs that we've sung, the Christmas carols that we've sung, one that often comes to my mind because of the depth of it and the truth of it is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This is one that's common. Like most Christmas carols, we only know, most of us, the first verse. We've only heard that first verse sung over and over. If you've ever been caroling, all you have to know is about four carols, with one verse, and that works. You just go from house to house and sing the same, the same one. And we think about Hark the Herald Angels Sing. When it was initially written, Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, wrote more hymns than any other man. Fanny Crosby, of course, had more than he did, but he wrote over 6,000 hymns, including Hark the Herald Angels Sing. When he wrote it, he was inspired as he was walking to church one Christmas morning in the city of London, and the bells were ringing. And initially the song was about the heavens proclaiming the glory of God and the, the sound as the angels sang from heaven. Later it would be adapted a little bit by a man by the name of George Whitfield, the great evangelist. And he added a few phrases and he added a few words, but the depth of truth and the direction of it slightly changed to where it pointed more not toward the heavens proclaiming, but from our point of view, seeing the glory of God, seeing Jesus, and seeing the message of the gospel in Christ Jesus. And some of the words of that stand out as I was reading this text and studying this text. The words that speak and say, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. But that phrase, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. What powerful truth in just a few short words. What a powerful truth for us. And then he says, hail the incarnate deity. We don't use that word incarnate much, but it's a biblical word. It's a word that means to take on flesh. From a biblical standpoint, it means that the Son of God took upon himself a human nature and human flesh. And it is a powerful, powerful truth. It was written in a time in the early centuries of the church when the idea of Christ in flesh was considered a, a foreign idea, that flesh was somehow evil, that anything of this material world was evil. 
and the truth came in the, in the truth of Scripture as it was expressed through the early church. It was expressed that Christ, who was God, also was man. This is clear in the Scriptures, and we read this, the Word was made flesh. Martin Luther said that the incarnation of Christ is a mystery that is beyond human understanding. If we were to go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke, in taking his time to explain and express the incarnation, Christ coming in the flesh, takes over 2,500 words. But John, when he writes it, he uses four simple words. He says, the Word became flesh. That's the incarnation in a nutshell. The Word became flesh. The Gospel of John is a gospel that emphasizes the message of Christ. His teaching is highlighted as opposed to his miracles. And even the miracles that he performs are connected with the messages that he's proclaiming. The word that is used, there's miracles and signs and wonders that are used to describe the wonderful things that Christ did. And in the Gospel of John, it's the signs. What does a sign do? It communicates a message. The words of what he is speaking, what he is expressing, and even the word itself, the word, the logos, it is the expression of a heart and mind. When we speak a word, it is expressing a message from our heart and our mind. And Christ is the expression of God's heart and mind to this world. As we see that, the gospel emphasizing that this text communicates to us so much in one simple statement. I'm not going to take the time this morning to dig deep down into, but every word and every phrase in this verse is filled with meaning and truth that is important and relevant to our understanding of Christ. But I want to focus just on a few things this morning that not only will point our minds and hearts forward to the second coming of Christ, but will point our hearts and minds back beyond his coming to the Old Testament. Because in this verse, John is incorporating a, a symbol and a sign from the Old Testament, that of the tabernacle, the dwelling of God with man. The word tabernacle simply means a dwelling place. To tabernacle with means to dwell with. As we look at this passage this morning, I want you to see some powerful truths from the life of Christ but it's also some powerful truths for our lives as well. The first thing that we would see in this statement is the experience of Christmas. It is the experience of God in the flesh. It is humanity experiencing who God is. God is not some figment of our imagination. He is not some mist that is so far out there that we cannot experience Him. He is a God who came near to us. I am glad, boy, how nice it is when you go through a difficult time and you get a word from afar. But when somebody comes to where you are to help you, I remember several Christmases ago, my dad and I were in a, a, a little bit of a fender bender. The guy behind us was not paying attention to what he was doing. He was looking down at his phone or his radio, and he rammed us in the back, and so we had to be taken to the hospital to be checked out. I got to wear one of those nice white collars. Uh, not what a priest wears, but what a, somebody with a neck problem wears. Boy, I milked it for all it was worth. I wore that thing for two years. But as we, were, as, as we were laying there waiting to be checked out, it was a new experience riding in the ambulance to get there. 
a pastor from the area who's not my pastor, wasn't my dad's pastor, but just a pastor that was a friend, came to check on us. You know what that meant for him to walk in, for him to be there in that particular moment with no obligation or no duty? He did it out of care and concern. Many of you have had those who have come, friends and neighbors, when you're in difficulty. And they didn't come because it was their job. They didn't come because they have to. They came because they cared about you and they loved you. I want you to know that God in the flesh, Jesus, came near to where we are because he cared for us, not because he had to, not because he was obligated, but out of his great love wherewith he hath loved us, he came to where we are. God, the word, became flesh. This is the experience. And he says he dwelt among us. That phrase, the word became flesh, I, I don't, do want to just point your mind to one particular thought about this. In this we see the dual nature of Jesus. The word, his divine nature, became flesh, his human nature. He was as much God as God as God, and he's as much man as you and I are human. He was both. He experienced all that we have experienced. That phrase tells us that Jesus had a previous superior spiritual existence before he came. Against the Arius heresy of the third, second and third century, he, there was, Arius would say, there was a time when he was not. But there was no time when Christ did not exist. He is the eternally existent Son of God. He did not begin to exist when he came to this earth. He is God and he has always existed. So the word existed and he became, he was made flesh. And then that phrase, he dwelt, it means he tabernacled among us. The word tabernacle was used in the Old Testament of the place of worship. Why? Not because it was a place of worship, but because it was a place where the presence of God was. We call this our tabernacle, not because it's an auditorium for worship, but because it's where the presence of God is to be experienced. It's where God is present when we come together as his church, as his people, where two or three are gathered in my name, and I think we're past two or three here this morning, but where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Let me just pause a minute and say that I've heard people say things. Oh, now, I went to that church, and I, don't, I just didn't sense the presence of God there. Well, you may not have sensed it in among many people, but if there were two or three of you that were there in his name, he was there in the midst. And he's here this morning. He's here in an absolute sense because he's everywhere. But I'm glad that when his people gather, he is here in a specific sense. And I love when we, we experience him in a manifested sense in which God shows his presence by the way that he works in the hearts and lives of his people, in the worship of his people. He inhabits the praise of his people. But the tabernacle was the place in the Old Testament. He dwelt in the Old Testament God dwelt among his people in the pattern of the tabernacle and the temple. In the time of Christ, in Christ in the New Testament, he dwelt among his people and he dwelt among mankind in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But I look forward to the day and the celebration of Christmas and the celebration of Advent is not just about Advent, his first coming, but it is in his second Advent, it is in his second coming. When we get to the book of Revelation and it says that God will dwell among his people, he will tabernacle with his people. 
And in the future, we celebrate and we rejoice because God will dwell in the perfection of his glory. And there will be no need for a temple. There will be no need for a physical tabernacle because God will dwell with us. Well, what a great blessing when he says the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. Christmas is a time to celebrate our personal experience of God through the person of Jesus Christ. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you can celebrate the holiday. You can give gifts. You can have a wonderful time. You can enjoy your family. You can enjoy the traditions. You can enjoy the decorations and all that takes place. But to truly enjoy the blessedness of Christmas, you need to have experienced the person of God in Christ Jesus. God, great is the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in this world, received up in the glory. Jesus Christ came to this world so that you could experience God. And this morning you can do that by simply repenting of your sins, placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and receiving the gift of Christmas, receiving the gift of Jesus Christ, receiving the free gift of salvation. That's the experience. But it's not just about the experience of God. This passage tells us that Christmas is also the expression of God. The incarnation is the expression of God. Notice this next part. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We beheld his glory. How was the glory of God seen in the person of Jesus Christ? It was seen in his teaching. When the people came to hear Jesus teach, remember what they said? Never has a man spoken like this. Never has a man taught like this. There was something unique. Jesus was more than just a good teacher. There are people in our world today who are willing to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the founder of a religion, that Jesus Christ is a good teacher. He is more than a good teacher. He is the great teacher. He is the God teacher. And when he spoke, never a man spake like this. We see it in his testing, in his time in the wilderness, when beyond what Adam was able to do in the garden, Adam was in a pleasant fruitful garden. Jesus was in a wilderness. There's so many contrasts and comparisons we can make. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was tempted and tested not to cause him to fail, but to demonstrate that he could not fail. Even when with a human nature, he experienced everything that you and I have experienced. And we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Years ago in the, in the West, there's a story of a, a, a bridge that was being made with a train, and the, the trussle was being built across this ravine. And when they finished, they loaded the train as full as they could load it. And they drove it across. And someone said, did you drive it across? Did you think it was going to break? He, the man that built the bridge said, no, I've tested it to show that it would not break. It could not break. I want you to know not only did Jesus not sin, Jesus could not sin. He was the Word. 
He could experience the temptation because he was the Word in the flesh, but he never sinned. He was tempted, yet without sin. There is nothing that you are going through this morning. There is nothing that you have experienced. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Every single person is tempted and you're facing trials, but Jesus knows exactly how you feel. You may have people come up to you and say, man, I sure I know how you feel, and your response may be, uh, no, you don't. Unless you've been through what I've been through, you don't know how I feel. And we understand what people mean by that, but I'll guarantee you when Jesus says he has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities, he knows exactly how we feel. He is exalted in his testing. They saw his glory and his transfiguration. When he was on the mountain with Peter and James and John, Moses and Elijah came down and they saw Jesus with his veil lifted, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Now unveiled in the flesh, they saw the Godhead. They saw the glory of Jesus Christ. But he's also glorified and we see his expression of God in the triumph of his resurrection. When they could not keep him in the grave, his resurrection power, the Spirit of God, God raised him from the dead, Romans chapter 8 tells us. There are so many wonderful truths in this passage and in this verse, but I want you to understand that our attention is drawn not merely as Cyril of the early church said, Cyril of Jeru the bishop of Jerusalem said, See not, do not fix your attention on Jesus from Bethlehem alone, but fix your attention on his glory as the eternally begotten Son from the Father. That's who Jesus is. We see the expression. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he is the express image of the person of God. When we see Jesus, we see what God is like in the flesh. We see what he is like because he is the express. Have you ever seen a child or a family member and you said, man, you're the spitting image of your granddaddy? Or when you're a young boy, you don't want to hear, you're the spitting image of your grandmother. That's a little disturbing. I'm not even sure what spitting image is. I've heard people say this. Some of y'all will know what I'm... Boy, he spit him out. I just don't even... I don't know where to go there with that. That's a, a mild bit of the concept of the express image. But Jesus didn't just... Because he was the expression of God, it wasn't that his flesh somehow looked like God... It was who he was as an individual, his nature, his person, his characteristics, his attributes. They were the expression of who God was. The Word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Where did they see the glory in the Old Testament? They saw it in the temple. They saw it in the tabernacle where God dwelt with men. The Shekinah glory of God would come down, and in fact, it was so great and so glorious that the priest could not stand to enter into the temple because of the glory of God. The glory of God is an overpowering glory. Our flesh cannot stand it. That's why when people talk about the seeing and experiencing the glory of God, and it becomes some kind of a fleshly experience, some kind of 
of exalting experience, it causes concern in my heart because every time you see someone in the Scriptures who experienced the glory of God, they are overwhelmed, they are humbled in the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6, I saw also the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord seated upon His throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The house was filled with smoke. And what does Isaiah do? Isaiah says, Hey guys, I'm going on the speaking circuit. I'm going to write a book about how I've experienced the presence of God. No, Isaiah falls on his face and says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The glory of God, that Shekinah glory, is a powerful glory. But I tell you that we cannot truly come into the presence of God and experience that glory and see that glory, that expression of the glory, without it changing us, without it convicting us, without it empowering us for what God has for us to do. The the expression of God. Christmas, in Christmas, we experience God. It's God dwelling among us. And just like the Old Testament tabernacle, that was God dwelling among them. And just like it will be in the future, it will be God tabernacling and dwelling with His people. And just like they saw the glory in the Old Testament, we see the glory in the person of Christ. There will come a day in the eternal state, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven and the new earth, when there will be no need for the sun, for the glory of God will be the light. That's what the future looks like. But then we also see the essence of God. The essence of God in Christmas is He was full of grace and truth. That phrase, full, takes us back to that Old Testament tabernacle when the glory and the presence of God filled the tabernacle. It filled the temple. The presence of God filling. What is this truth? He said, full of grace, full of truth. The grace reveals. John in his epistle, 1 John, would have two large foci of Jesus as the Son of God. He is, God is light, God is love. And in this we see this, in this truth, God, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. He'll say later in this passage that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The grace that is revealed through Christ reminds us that He is, that God is love. And the truth reminds us that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. That's the revelation. This is the essence of who God is. God and His perfection. That's who Jesus Christ was. He wasn't just a physical body. In His essence, He was God. Look, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. This is not just a winter solstice holiday. This is not just a winter celebration. This is a celebration of someone who either means absolutely nothing if he is a liar, or it means everything 
If Jesus is not who he said he is, then there is no hope of salvation in this world. But if Jesus is who he said he is, then it matters to every person and it matters in the deepest sort of way. There are those who want to treat it like, well, it really doesn't matter what you think about Jesus. It matters a great deal what you think about Jesus. Why? Because he is God. He is the light. He is the grace of God extended to you and I. What do we have to look forward to in the future? Well, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God. In Christ, the fullness of God dwelleth. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Peter will say. In the future, the eternal state, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God with men, we will be with Him in His fullness. What a powerful, powerful truth. The tabernacle in the Old Testament, God's presence with us. The people experienced God. They came to know God. They, walked, they came to be with Him and His glory and His essence filled the temple, the fullness of God. In Christ Jesus, the fullness of God, the experienced people encountered God in the flesh. He dwelt with His people, and His glory was manifested in the future. The glory of God, the presence of God, our experience in the fullest, most perfect way with the essence, the grace, and the truth of Jesus Christ. All that's wonderful. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the future. What about right now? What about now? All of this truth is important for us. Why? Because now we are the dwelling place of God. We are His temple. We are His tabernacle. You, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. God dwells with us, in us. The God who was in great glory in His presence in the past, in the Old Testament, the great glory of God that was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, the great glory of God and the presence of God that will be manifested and experienced in the future, all of that dwells in us. And of His fullness, John chapter 1 and verse 18, of His fullness have all we received. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. What does that mean? That means that the glory of God is residing in us. We are unfit earthen vessels. And yet the glory of God can be brought... What does Paul say? Paul says that by grace we are moving from glory to glory. That as God works in us, as God changes us, as God does His sanctifying work in your life and in my life, He is moving us from glory to glory into the into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's how we experience Christmas. That's how we experience the presence of God. That's how we experience the glory of God. It's when God works in us and changes us to make us like Christ. Charles, uh, Charles um, Wesley, when he wrote that hymn, he got the sense of that. Hark the herald angels sing. Come, he says, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Bruise sin. Destroy sin. Make us like yourself. Adam's likeness now effaced. Stamp thine image in its place. 
That's what Christ is doing. The glory of Christ is to work in us and to bring out His likeness and to make us like Jesus Christ. Christmas is not about us just loving people more and having more joy and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It is the peace of God and it is the love of God and it is the grace of God at work in our lives to make us like Jesus Christ. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Aren't you glad for the presence of God in your life? That everywhere you go, God is with us. Emmanuel, the name means God with us. And every moment of my life, every moment of my day, no matter what is taking place, no matter where I am, no matter what is happening, and there are some of you who are experiencing great trials, you're going through grief, you're going through sorrow, I want you to know that you are never away from the presence of God. God is with us. And He is at work to make us like Christ. So what is this truth mean right now past is wonderful old testament's wonderful new testament wonderful future what we have to look forward to is wonderful what about right now i believe there's two admonitions for us one is that we are to model what christ is like by the work of the holy spirit in us we are to model to this world we are to be the evidence of the presence of god in this world can our friends and neighbors and our family, can they see God through our lives? What if you were the only gospel that your friends would read? The only gospel message they hear is like, everybody says, oh, <laughs> you just don't have to say it, you have to live it. My problem is, is that most people of the times when we say that, we're not really living it either. We have to be the voice. We have to be the message. We speak the truth of Scripture. We speak the message of the gospel, and we model it to this world. We are His dwelling place. The Spirit of God dwelleth, dwells in you, the Bible says. And then we have an admonition to magnify the glory of God. How long has it been, not since you've just thought about how great God is, but when you have taken a moment or moments to stop what you're doing. Look, I know we're busy. Hey, we're all here. I'm giving, I'm giving Jesus an hour on New Year's Eve. What more could he want? How long has it been since you've just stopped and paused and maybe gotten in an altar or you've knelt by your bed or you've knelt at your chair and you've just bowed your head and you've magnified the grace of God? You've magnified Jesus Christ. We say all the little cliches, Jesus is the reason for the season, keep Christ in Christmas, all those wise men still seek Him. We got all the phrases, but I'm talking about just simply expressing from our heart the glory of God, giving God glory and praise, kneeling in His presence as Isaiah did, and bowing before Him and saying, You are a great and mighty God. I have experienced Your greatness and Your glory in the person of Christ. I'm experiencing that work in my heart, and God, I want to give You praise. I want to give You glory. It's not enough just for us to try to live a good life. It is to magnify the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ and to find this verse true in our hearts, to find the depths of it and to understand it, that the Word was made flesh and He dwelt 
among us. And we, John said, beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If there's ever anything that deserves to be praised, if there's ever anything that deserves to be magnified and adored, it is that God became man. Father, I pray this morning that you will challenge us with this truth, not just to have knowledge of it, but Lord, to, to live out, to be as the tabernacle was, as Jesus was, the expression of your person in this world. Father, you dwell in us in the Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you will help us in this Christmas season and the year ahead to manifest what Christ is like to this world. And Father, help us to magnify your name. Help us to lift you up. Father, I pray this morning for Christians that have been so caught up in all the busyness of their lives that they just haven't taken just a moment to kneel quietly in your presence and give you praise. Father, I pray that you will draw this morning, that they will follow through, they will listen to your voice. Father, for those of us that need to that need to experience the work of sanctification and holiness in our life. Father, may we worship you this morning. May we magnify your name. May this moment of invitation not just be a time of repentance and a time of coming to the altar to say what we've done wrong. May it be a time when we come to exalt what you have done right and who you are and your glory, that the word became flesh.